Good morning and Merry Christmas. It's a blessing to be together and we have a number of visitors with us. I see some extended family members, some of my own extended family members. Uh, Welcome to all of you. It's great to have you together. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 1 as we're going to uh, look at this uh, heavenly view of the Christmas story, the eternal perspective on it, which tells us something very profound and very important. As we rush around and we um, are buying gifts we had our candlelight service and we're hosting family or we're traveling and there's a lot of busyness going on and we might wonder how should we think about Christmas and how should we think about the incarnation and here in the prologue to John's gospel we have a wonderful window uh, onto uh, God's purposes in sending his son into the world so We'll look at this passage, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1220, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version this morning. This is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. Some years ago there was a a series of uh, Christmas time commercials in which... uh, People were pictured as young children remembering their, uh, the greatest gift ever. And so they show a, a young uh, boy uh, envisioning this uh, big wheel and uh, riding joyfully on his big wheel. And a little girl uh, remembering a pony. And, uh, and then what's happening is these, these uh, people are trying to hold those, those memories in their minds as those memories are overwhelmed by a new memory of receiving a new car as an adult, and that becomes 
the greatest gift of all time. And of course, it's a commercial, so we don't want to press this too far. But um, what's absolutely missing in the commercial is the giver of the gift. The focus is just simply on the gift itself. And so often this can be a great confusion in gift giving. And so uh, children, as you may be receiving gifts, keep this in mind that the important thing is is the giver uh, who's behind the gift and not the gift itself. So often our focus gets in the wrong place. And this is true uh, when we think about the significance of the incarnation and, and how we really should think about this holiday with all the rushing around and things that are going on. What's really significant is the giver of the gift. And in fact, when we look at this passage and we, and we look and, and sort of peel back the curtain and look through a, a kind of eternal perspective on what was going on, we realize that in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ, God was in effect giving us himself. And so the greatest gift that we have received is God's gift of himself to us. And when we understand what that means, that gives us something profound to meditate on and to be thankful for. And so as we think about this, our main point this morning, it's in your outline in the bulletin, that God has revealed his glory most fully to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate the incarnation uh, as God's gift of himself to us, his people. And children, if you want to draw a picture this morning, draw a picture of maybe of you opening a present and then listen uh, for what this text tells us about what this greatest of gifts is. Well, there's an outline in your bulletin. The first thing I want us to notice there is that Jesus is God's great gift to you. And let me say at the outset that I have really appreciated D.A. Carson's treatment of this passage. So what I am saying is largely taken uh, from his work on this. So verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is a strange way to begin a book, even uh, an ancient book. It was unusual in its own time. One of the confusing things here, of course, is that this word, this phrase, the word, which is used for Jesus, is not used at any other place in this gospel. Uh, John never mentions it again after the prologue here. And uh, what is the word? This is the word, the Greek word logos. Uh, And logos means uh, sort of the logic or the inner meaning of something. So if you study theology, Uh, The word logi that we put on the end of our words is sort of that's the logic of God or the study of God. Or if you study biology, this is the logic of life or anthropology, the logic of men. And so John uses this word logos to mean the outward expression of something. And it's used in the Bible and other places to mean sort of a speech or a message. I put one example in the bulletin. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the word that's translated message there is the same word, logos. And some translations translate it word there. So this is a, a communication of sorts. And what's fascinating is that in the first chapter of John's gospel, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, 
the Son of Man, Messiah, Rabbi, King of Israel, Christ, and Lamb of God, all in the first chapter. And Logos, if you read through the rest of the book of John, all those other terms get more development later in the book. But this term Logos that he begins with, the word, it's never mentioned again. And it suggests that perhaps this is sort of a foundational truth, an overarching description of who he is as an expression, an outward expression, a message from God. And this is consistent with how we see the word of God used in other parts of the Bible. So at creation, God said, let there be light, all right? And the universe begins uh, to exist and to take form. Or as we sang from Psalm 33, the Lord by his word created the heavens. Uh, We see this also in God's prophetic revelation where the prophet speaks the word of the Lord. This is God's communication to his people. This is also applied at times to God's miraculous works, his deliverance of the people from in the Exodus or in the book of Joshua, for example. And it's also seen at times in God's judgment, his communication of judgment to his people as well. And so what John seems to be saying here is, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was God's self-expression. God is expressing himself. And what's so fascinating here, of course, is that the ultimate expression of God's being is a person. It's not just a message. It's not just words. It is a person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the author of the book of Hebrews is getting at in the beginning of Hebrews. I put the first four verses of the book of Hebrews in the outline as well. And it says there, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. But what does it say about about God's communication? In these last days, he's communicated to us by his son, who is a glorious representation of our Lord and the God who is invisible. And that's pretty profound, that the son of God who was sent into the world is God's communication of himself to us. Uh, Our family has done the, uh, I should say some members of our family, I haven't had much of a role in this, Uh, the, the, the difficult work of going through Um, boxes and boxes of letters that were left behind by the previous generation. And one of the really interesting finds that uh, my daughter, I think with uh, maybe the help of my mom, came across were all these letters written from my grandfather while he was serving in World War II in France uh, during the, uh, the, as the Allied forces uh, swept uh, across France, back to his wife, and her three young children. And so 
as, uh, as a wife has to navigate this and her husband is overseas in war. And you see in these letters, and of course we don't write letters very much anymore, how a person is actually putting some of themselves into these letters as you, you're not seeing each other for months and months at a time. And, and you can see there's something in these letters of the person who writes the letter. And, and that's very significant, very meaningful. And yet you realize how even that pales in comparison to what this text is telling you in that God sent himself, this communication of himself in his son uh, into the world so that we would have a better picture on who he was, a window into our God. It is the greatest gift that we have. And this is what this whole passage is about from beginning to end. Look at verse 18. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. This is what Christ has done in his person, has come and brought us a communication from the God who rules the universe. So Jesus is God's great gift to you, the communication of God's very self. And so what is it that, uh, that Jesus communicates? Well, we see secondly here that Jesus is the one who creates you. Jesus is your creator in verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. This is one of the things that we learn uh, through Jesus Christ. It's very parallel with what we read in Hebrews 1 before. It talks about Jesus being the one through whom God made the worlds. Another similar cross-reference is from Colossians 1 verses 16 and 17, which says, for by him, that is by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. You see how that echoes with what John the Baptist says in our text here, where John says in verse 15, he comes after me, is preferred before me because he was before me. Jesus Christ is the eternal creator. And this is a very important thing for us to understand, that Jesus himself created the world and everything in it and is the one who sustains the world. Why is that so significant? Because it reminds us Jesus is eternal. This is what he's saying in verse 1. He was with God and he was God. This is the mystery of the Trinity, that he is at the same time distinct from God, with God, and at the same time he is God in all of his fullness. And so in, in the wisdom of our triune God, the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, is the agent who creates the world. And, and that means every single person owes their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Nothing was made apart from him, this tells us. And so many people will tell you, well, it's okay if you believe in Jesus. That's good for you. You know, you do you, I'll do me. That's not a viable option. 
because every single human being was made by Jesus and for Jesus. And so every one of us, whether we acknowledge it or not, owe him our allegiance, owe him our worship, owe him our service. That's why John writes later in John 3, verse 18, this is also in your outline, he who believes in me is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We all come in with that obligation to worship him. And if we reject him, this is why he says you are condemned already. I think some of the children here would be familiar with the story of Pinocchio. Is that right? Have you seen that story? Uh, the, the little puppet who was made uh, by, um, uh, by his owner and he, uh, he builds this puppet and then Pinocchio kind of comes to life. Um, but he's not a real boy. He's still uh, just a puppet. And one of the things that we learn there, actually the, the written version of this story is much uh, more graphic uh, than, the, uh, than the Disney version of it because uh, the, the, the puppet boy is very uh, scandalously uh, disobedient to the one who made him. And even so much that the, the, the puppet maker who makes him has to go off and searching all over the world and gets himself into uh, a deadly situation uh, trying to find this boy who will not obey. And, uh, and we, we look at that and, and, and you know, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be very upset with the puppet for treating uh, his maker like this. Uh, but of course, it's just, it's just a story. Uh, the real scandal is that we don't recognize the one who made us and uh, who, to whom we owe everything. Uh, this is the one that we worship. This is the one who sustains every beat of your heart, every breath that you take. Uh, Jesus Christ is God's gift to you, and he is the one who made you and sustains you. We also see in this text, thirdly, that he is the one who gives you light and spiritual life. Uh, you see in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, yes, he's the creator. He's the one there saying, let there be light at the beginning of creation. Uh, and yet this isn't speaking so much about physical life here. It's speaking about spiritual life. Again, quoting from later in the book, John 3, verse 19, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. A darkness here standing in for ignorance and for evil and for a refusal to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus says later in John 8, I am the light of the world. He is the one who comes and gives spiritual life to people who are dead in their sins. Uh, you see in verse 9, he is the true light which gives light to every man. He was coming into the world. I'm always amazed when we do our candlelight service because, all right, at night we don't have light coming through our windows. We turn off all the lights in, the, in this area and you would think that you couldn't see anything really, uh, especially not to be able to read 
uh, your program or to sing. Uh, and yet, when you start lighting just a few candles, the difference it makes is really profound. And we all understand this, that a little light pushes back the darkness. All you need is one flame to push back the darkness. And so in a sense, the light is self-evident. And yet we hear here in verses 6 and following that there was this man sent from God. This is John the Baptist who came as a witness to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness to that light. Why does a light need witness? If you're in the dark and someone lights a candle, then you can see the light. You don't need someone to say, hey, light, unless you're blind or you have your eyes covered like this. And that's essentially what the world is doing when the Son of God comes into the world, the creator of the world comes into the world, and the world has its eyes closed, willfully not wanting to see. As it says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We cannot see, because unless Jesus opens our eyes, we are blind. The man who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, and now I see. Was getting at this idea. A man who had been a slave trader, who had actually captained slave ships uh, in his younger years. And God had come to him and opened his eyes. And John Newton was able to see spiritually. And Jesus Christ came into his heart and gave him life. And he became a new person. And in the later years was a staunch abolitionist fighting against the slave trade, recognizing the great evil that he had been engaged in. And this is what Jesus does as the bringer of life and light He opens your eyes so that you can see and understand who he is. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, writing about this concept, said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, I can look up and see the sun, but because by it I see everything else. I have open eyes and I can see the world. Jesus gives light and life. He is the word of God. And fourthly, we see here that Jesus confronts you and me in our sin, and he rescues us from it. Verse 10 says that he came to his, uh, sorry, verse 10 says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And there it's using the word for world that sort of means Uh, the whole created order, and it would include all people out there and the unbelieving world in opposition to God. And uh, he came into the world, and he was rejected by this world that he had made. But then verse 11 goes on to say, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So he came to the religious people. He came to the Jewish people, all right? So the, the unbelievers out there didn't receive him, but he came to religious people, And they didn't receive him either. 
they turn their backs on him. And it's a reminder that all of us, by nature, reject Jesus. This is our bent. We don't submit to him. We don't recognize him. And there's a great danger here. Because, you know, the, only, the next place in the Bible where Jesus is called the Word of God is in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And Jesus is described as a rider on a white horse going out to make war against all who have opposed him and rejected him. And this is the state that we are all in by nature, having rejected the Lord and facing his anger. I know Philip referred to this the other day, but I think it's so uh, insightful that the Times in London was, was running a little feature in the paper in the early 1900s, what is wrong with the world? And so people were writing in. You can imagine how that would go today. What's wrong with the world? Well, it's this political party. It's this politician. It's these people over here. It's the border. It's whatever, right? We'd have a long list. And so people are going back and forth. What's wrong with the world? And then there comes this one very short letter. Dear sir, what is wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. And that really is what's wrong with the world, is people, sinful people who have rejected their creator and who are spiritually blind and dead in their sins. We are the world. And yet look at the great hope that's in this passage in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. It's a beautiful description of the doctrine of election. To those whose hearts are changed, who are able to receive Christ, he makes us his children. And see how verse 13 emphasized this, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God changes us, and as we embrace Christ, as we receive him, we become sinners. We become new people. Our hearts are changed, and we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And what is he saying? What does it mean for us to receive, to receive him? It's one thing, and quite a number of people will say Jesus died for sinners, or Jesus died in some general way. But receiving him means that we are saying, I'm a sinner, and Jesus died for me. That, it, that This is personal. He's taken my sins upon himself. He has delivered me from darkness and from death and from judgment. We, we were reading in Sinclair Ferguson's little uh, Advent devotional, Love Came Down. It's an exposition on 1 Corinthians 13. And then the last installment, uh, he says in there, he tells a story about a man who's on his deathbed. And he, he, he is in anguish because he has no peace in his soul. And he believes he is uh, going to be judged by God. And the ministers come and talk to him time and again. And, and, and he calls for the minister again. And the minute, I've told him everything I, I can tell him. You know, he just, he just has to believe. And, 
And, uh, and so the, the son pleads for the minister to come one more time. The minister says, well, I guess I can come and read my sermon to him that I preached today. And so uh, I've never tried this, by the way, to just read somebody a sermon. But, uh, so he comes, and so he says, I'm, I'll read you my sermon. And he begins by just reading from Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. And then he starts to read the sermon, and the man says, stop. That's all I needed. He was wounded for our transgressions. The Holy Spirit finally opened his eyes, and he realized that was a word to him. Jesus Christ was wounded for my transgressions. I am saved because of Jesus' work on my behalf. Jesus, God's word to you, is the Savior who confronts you in your sin and saves you, rescues you from your sin. And finally, we see here that Jesus supremely reveals God's glory to you in verses 14 to 18. And here's where he speaks about the incarnation in particular. In verse 14, and the word became flesh. And and this would have been scandalous to the original readers because the word he uses there for flesh is, is like the word they use for meat. And so this idea that this ethereal, eternal word, this message from God took on flesh, became meat. It's it's graphic, and it would have been offensive, especially to the Greeks in that day. But it reflects how radical it is that that the eternal Son of God took on a human body and added to his divine nature a full human nature. And what did he do? In verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word that's translated dwelt there is the word for tabernacle, turned into a verb. Uh, So it's just like in the wilderness when God set the tent in the midst of the people and dwelled among them. That was pointing us toward this. When God came in a human body to live amongst his people, to dwell with them. And the language that John is using here, this could be your homework assignment, is hearkening back to Exodus chapters 32 to 34. Because in Exodus 32, when the people turn their backs on God and sin, God tells Moses, I'm done with these people. And Moses pleads for them. And God says, okay, go ahead. I'll send my angel in front of you. And Moses says, no. If you won't go yourself, I don't want to go. We won't go unless you are with us in our midst. And uh, God says, okay, I'll go with you. And Moses doesn't believe. He says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, no man can see me and live. You see echoes of that in here? Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. 
or verse 14, we beheld his glory. And God says to Moses when he says, let me see your glory, he says, I will let my goodness pass in front of you. And then as God passes in front of Moses, he says, I've given you this in the outline, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. And those two words in the Old Testament, goodness and truth, we have the New Testament equivalents of those in verses 14 and 17 here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Those are the New Testament equivalents or what we have in verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So God's presence, God's goodness reflects his glory. And we see this in the goodness and truth, the grace and truth that comes in Jesus Christ which is why he says in verse 16, of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. It's grace replacing grace. It's overflowing grace that's coming to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 17, the law was given through Moses. The law is a blessing. It is a blessing to have the law of God, a rule of life for people in relationship with God. But the law cannot save you. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this is what he's saying. You want to see the glory of God. You see it most clearly in the work of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. And in John's gospel, everything is leading to one place. His whole ministry is described in the first 12 chapters. The rest of the gospel is about one thing and one thing only. And that's Jesus Christ going to the cross. That's where the grace and truth of God come together in their most powerful display. When the Son of God in his human nature and body hang on the cross judged for the sins of his people that's what this is all driving at and it is in the cross where we see the goodness and the glory of God in its most profound form and recognize that if Jesus Christ had not come into the world as a child as a human being he couldn't die on the cross for you and for me. Tim Challies was writing about this just in the last week, and I put a quote from him in your outline. In order to save us, Christ had to die for us. And in order to die for us, Christ had to live for us. And in order to live for us, Christ had to be born for us. It is at Christmas that we tell the beginning of the story, his incarnation, at Christmas that we celebrate his birth, at Christmas that we mark the dawning of hope. 
because Jesus Christ did go to the cross and did rise again victorious over the grave, we have hope in him. One of the more surprising gifts I got this Christmas uh, was from one of my students. And the reason I say this was surprising was that uh, she asked to meet me and she told me not to open the gift until later. And uh, so she, she gave me some chocolates and things like that. But she had written a card. And in the card, she'd actually drawn a picture And I have to say, it wasn't the greatest picture I've ever seen, but it was really meaningful to me because she had been willing to be vulnerable and share a piece of herself in that way as a part of her gift. And you realize how that's a profound, we get a profound window into people's hearts sometimes in the gifts that they give. And recognize that's what this passage is telling you. God has revealed himself to you. He has declared himself to you. And he's done it through his son, a person that perfectly reflects who God is. The one who made you. The one who comes to you in your sin and delivers you. The one who goes to the cross to save you from your sins. That is what we celebrate, not just on December 25, but every day, and every certainly every Lord's Day, when we come on the first day of the week, God has revealed his glory to you in his Son. That's the way to celebrate the incarnation, is to meditate and to celebrate what the Lord has done for you. Let's pray and we'll ask him to help us do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage of your word, truly unique in all of the scripture, which gives us a heavenly perspective on the coming of our Lord into the world. And we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have displayed your goodness and your glory as you are the one who suffers and dies for us, who lives for us, that we might be forgiven and that we might become your children. And how we thank you for sending Jesus into the world so that we can see him as our creator as the one who loves us and who mercifully confronts us and heals us and saves us. And Lord, we pray that as we meditate on, as we celebrate with our families, as we open our gifts, that we would remember this greatest of all gifts, the Lord Jesus Christ sent to us that we might have eternal life. And we pray that you would help us to put our faith and hope in him and to rejoice in his good word to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And now we'll sing back our praise to the Lord uh, from Psalm 138, selection B. The psalm speaks about God magnifying his word above 
all things. As we praise him, uh, we recognize that. And it says here in the psalm so much so that all the kings of the earth uh, will uh, bow down and worship him. Uh, They will recognize the glory of the Lord, uh, which is great. And we sing here also about how the Lord, although he is exalted high and stands afore on lowly ones, will keep his eye. That God is the one who is near to his people. Let's stand and we'll sing our praise to him.